Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. This is when the unbeliever in the room starts feeling uncomfortable, right? I've had this discussion with so many uh, unbelievers in the church around Christmas time because they're like, hold on a second. So in your religion, the Holy Spirit impregnates people, right? And I'm like, well... Like, hold on, it was really in one instance, and the instance was pretty powerful. Watch the rest of the story. Here's what happens, okay? And her husband, Joseph, just like any other dude in the room, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, look at this, he resolved to divorce her quickly, okay? And not just quickly, but the scripture also adds quietly, he, he wants to divorce her, he seeks to divorce her. Is it interesting to anyone else that the savior of the universe gets put in the womb of a virgin and the issue surrounding the coming of Christ is a potential divorce? Has that ever like struck you as odd or interesting? I just say the word in the room. And the veins and the heartache and the pain just at hearing the word divorce that this room represents is incredible. Uh, I uh, come from a divorce home. My parents divorced when I was 18 years old. That is many of your stories. Maybe it's not you personally. It was an aunt, an uncle. Some of you uh, maybe in here married or have been divorced before. The stats say every 36 seconds in America someone goes through divorce. This is a massive issue. You thought when I started reading Matthew chapter 1 that this was like going to be a Christmas night, but actually tonight's about divorce, right? And you're like leaning over to your girlfriend like, hey, get the car. It's time to go, right? This is not the night I signed up for. But what if tonight, what if tonight, all of a sudden this issue of divorce took on brand new meaning for us? I mean, when I was growing up, when, when this was taught or things like it, It was done so with like a finger pointing, like angry, serious face kind of tone. Heaping on condemnation, heaping on ridicule. Making every divorcee or or child in the room who's gone through divorce like have to almost re-go through the pain. But I believe that the power of the gospel is freeing us from those things. So what if tonight on an issue that is incredibly hard to discuss in the church, I mean, it's almost frowned upon. Don't go there. Don't go there, man. You want to start teaching divorce up in here like it's going to create all kinds of rifts. What if instead tonight you and I got to experience the depths of the gospel by teaching and learning about divorce? What if that happened? Then maybe just maybe the thing that you've experienced as a child in a home that will forever be broken, maybe, just maybe, then your encounter and your experience becomes redemptive because it teaches you more about the depth of what God's done for you. Maybe, just maybe, that will happen here tonight. Or maybe, just maybe, one day when you're walking down the aisle and then two years after you and her said, I do, 
And things start not going the exact way that you planned or her body changes and, you know, things over here are a little bit different. And I never heard her say that before and I didn't know she couldn't cook and I, I, didn't, I didn't know her family was going to be this much of a mess. Maybe, just maybe, what God does in your heart tonight can impact, listen to this, not just two years after marriage, but your children and your children's ch- children. I'm, pro- I'm promoting tonight that God can do a work in this room that will transform all of us for a long, long, long time. So are you guys ready to go? Okay. I'm going to pray that that happens. I can't make it so. I'm going to pray that grace surrounds this whole thing. And no matter what baggage you bring into here, the Lord will do what he desires in our hearts. So let's pray for that because, dear heavens, it's going to be a journey. Let's pray. All right? Uh, Father, I approach this topic tonight as you know in my heart, with fear and trepidation, I desire that they would be your words and not my opinion. I pray, God, because you can make this happen in people's hearts, that they would receive this tonight with love, grace, mercy, that the response would be worship. So I pray against condemnation. I pray against ridicule. I I pray, God, against angry hearts. Instead, Father, I do ask that you will convict us, morph us, Graft us continually into your son, Jesus. Do that work now for your glory, God. In your great and holy name, amen. So turn to 1 Corinthians. And as you're turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, listen to the rest of the story. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man, uh, tries to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, and on and on the story goes. This story of divorce potentially turns to redemption And that's the beauty of what God does. So 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It's been an interesting string of teachings, right? A few weeks ago, incest. Soon after that, lawsuits. Last week, Jared had to wrestle with the very uh, tough teaching and did a beautiful job with teaching on marriage and singleness and some of the implications uh, there within. And tonight, unlike verse 8 that began to the unmarried, verse 10 begins like this. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. To the married... Paul says, I give this charge. Uh, The Greek word for charge really uh, maybe is better command. Now it makes sense that he would be doing this in Corinth. Because in Corinth what's happened, right, is the gospel is like infiltrating. The message of Jesus is infiltrating in this city. And so what's happening is you have these marriages that began when they were both unbelievers. Okay? And all of a sudden, like, Like mama's coming home and she's just heard the gospel and she's responding to the gospel and she's sharing it with her husband or they were both at, you know, some uh, scroll Bible study uh, like meeting and and all of a sudden like the, the, the truth of God becomes real to them. And so what's probably happening here is uh, these folks in Corinth have gotten a message to Paul on some issues now that are arising in their marriages, and they want Paul to address them. And that's what Paul does, maybe in this whole series in chapter 7. To the married, I give this charge, he says. But I want to make sure you understand, it's not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. Whoa, 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 right? So hold on a second. What what Paul is saying is you should seek reconciliation in your marriage 
But if you aren't reconciled and divorce happens, then like you should, like there's no remarry. But, but this is creating already in some of you like a massive, massive rift. Because you're like, hold on a second, that goes kind of counter some of the things I believed or learned. So because of that, I want to answer three questions tonight. Here's the questions I want to answer, okay? Next slide. Number one, I want to answer, what does Jesus teach on divorce? Don't you think that'd be pertinent? We should probably understand the red letters. You guys understand? What does Jesus say on the issue? Number two, I want to answer, why is divorce harmful? And, and again, it's going to be true that it harms generations of children, and, and many of you are the product of that. It's going to be true that, that there's certain aspects of relationships that are harmed but it's harmful for reasons that are so much deeper, and we'll get there. And number three, our big famous question, is there liberty for discernment? Okay, so let's walk through these three questions. Hard, hard stuff. Number one, what does Jesus say on the issue? Are you ready for this? I don't don't think you are, okay? Matthew 19. There's four main texts in the Gospels. John doesn't address it, but four main texts between Matthew, Mark, and Luke that divorce is uh, taken on, tackled by Jesus. Now, verse one. When Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Now, I've been to the Jordan, I've been to Judea, beautiful, beautiful place. What's happening here is Jesus is making his jaunt from Galilee and now headed to Jerusalem to die. So these are some of his last teachings before uh, he dies. He says in verse 2, large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And here they are, the Pharisees. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him. By asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? I think there's more Pharisee or Pharisee, as I like to say sometimes. I think there's more Pharisee in us than we give it credit for. In other words, sometimes I think we lust after debating hot Christian topics as a means of testing one another and not a means of ending in worship. In other words, any time that I talk about any kind of scriptural, a hot topic or scripture in general, my desired outcome of the conversation, just like the one we're having right now, is worship. So yes, somehow we can talk about some of these very, very hard issues and get to this place in the end where we worship the Lord. Instead, the Pharisees are coming at Jesus with a contentious heart, trying to create, in this case, a testing of Christ that would pigeonhole him. And I'm wondering how much of that is in you. In other words, I'm wondering how much do you guys enjoy stirring up by like, you know, creating some hot topic debate? So what do you think about Calvinism, right? And the person's like, that's kind of a cuss word, isn't it? I don't even know what that means. Well, well, let me tell you what it means. What do you believe about that? And the end desire of your heart isn't worship at all. It's because you really want to be seen as right. You really want to be seen as having the answers. You really want to be seen as being scholarly. That's the pharisaical heart, okay? They're trying to test Jesus, but Jesus, being awesome and eternal and the incredible good God, look what he says. This is awesome. I love this, okay? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, quoting Genesis 2, And said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two become what? Become one flesh. He's like, hey, Pharisees, haven't you read this? And he he knows they have. Okay, so the beautiful rhetorical question from the Christ. So they are no longer two, but he says one flesh. 
What therefore God has joined together, many of you guys have heard this at a wedding, let not man, what? Separate. God is the originator, the creator then of the marriage covenant. So what God has brought together, Jesus says, let no man separate. Now some hard words from the Christ. Next slide of Matthew. They said to him, why then did Moses command, uh, to command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Well, the Moses card in, in this time is like when you're playing a game and the Jesus card comes out, right? So some of you guys have ever like, played like, you know, if or uh, would you rather. And someone says, like, who's the coolest, you know, who would you want to have dinner with? And someone says, Jesus, and the game's over, right? It's like, okay, like, Abraham Lincoln's now not so cool, right? Like, I, I don't know. The Moses card is just like that, Okay. So the Pharisees are like, mm, Moses, how you like that, right? I'm going to raise you and I'm going to bring in, that's right, Moses, right? Like even a movie made about him, okay? So they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Which happened in Deuteronomy, they're quoting correctly, but he said to them, Jesus, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. Man and woman, a man and woman, one flesh, Okay, the garden sin comes into the world and then because Jesus said of the hardness of your heart, then Moses sets up a structure for divorce in Deuteronomy. Now, here's the famous verse nine. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits what? Commits adultery. So it's as if he's saying, it's as if he's saying, if you get divorced, and it wasn't by means of sexual morality, and you marry another person, then that marriage is adultery. Right? And you're like, that's really lighthearted stuff, Mark. Oh, no, it gets better. Check this out. Next slide. Here's his next text, okay? Mark 10. This is just after that exact same story, but now Mark adds this part. And in the house, I love this, this is hilarious, the disciples asked him again about this matter, right? So... So where Matthew leaves off, what happens in Mark's account is the disciples are like, hey, Jesus, can we get some more clarity on that, right? Like, almost like these say we can't understand. You need to spell it out for us because that's kind of a hard one, okay? So here's what Jesus says. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her, which if you're reading it like I am, Jesus repeats himself. Oh, you want clarification? Let me say it again, right? Like, how much more clear can it be, okay? And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, Luke's gospel only has one verse in the entire gospel that deals with divorce. It's Luke chapter 16, verses 18. We taught through this when we studied Luke, and it's kind of random, but here it is. Luke 16, 18, one verse. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her Husband commits adultery. Do you see a running theme, my friends? Okay. Now, the last text, and maybe we could say the most significant, comes in the early parts of Matthew, part of the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, just after the Beatitudes, here's what Jesus says in Matthew 5. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, like we've already seen, let him give her a certificate of divorce, coming from Deuteronomy. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, sexual morality, we need to define here. Though it has a general sense, 
especially often when the word porneia is used, even though the word is similar here, okay, there's a little bit different variation that implies more fornication. In other words, in other words, sexual immorality in the intercourse way. Now, that can come in all kinds of various forms and all kinds of various deviances, okay? But the sexual immorality here uh, isn't uh, just, for instance, like us uh, looking at pornography per se, but it's more uh, intercourse outside of one man, one woman in marriage. Let's take those four texts and let's make very, very clear what Jesus is teaching about divorce, okay? Point number one, here's what he's saying. Marriage is a covenant not to be broken by man as two, one woman and one man have become one flesh. Why is it adultery? Why does Jesus keep saying, if you end the marriage and then remarry and it wasn't on means of sexual morality, this is adultery. Why is he saying that? He's saying it because he's not recognizing this divorce as divorce. The covenant is still intact. And so because the covenant is still intact, when you leave that covenant, and then you, as you think, and then you get remarried, you are committing adultery. So for anyone here who this is your story, and you feel like now like, there's this label on your forehead and you're, you're like beginning to feel the weight of condemnation on you. Let me remind you of the power of what Christ has done. These teachings, commands, clarifications aren't in the text to create in believers condemnation over their past. They are to provide a means of worship as we celebrate the grace that he's given us in light of our mistakes and provide direction and discernment for how we approach the future. Do you guys understand? Now, the way I was growing up, right, is, is we would get to a text like this, and then, then all of a sudden it's like, hey, you better, you better get a tat that says, you know, fornicator right there on your forehead, adulterer, go ahead and put that on your forehead. Well, Jesus says... Anyone who even looks lustfully on a woman is committing adultery. So is there one man in here who cannot, who can say that they have never committed adultery? Is there one man? Let him stand and receive tremendous applause, right? Is there one man, right? And I need to sit down, okay? Is is there one man? No, every single man in here considered by Jesus is an adulterer. And yet somehow God's grace supersedes it all. You guys understand? Okay. So the second point he makes here, and this is difficult, it's hard to understand, but it's significant. The only means for a remarriage that's not considered adulterous after a divorce is when the marriage covenant has been broken by sexual immorality. Sexual immorality enters a marriage, right? And some of you are thinking, well, I'll just get creative. All right, I, I see your scripture, Mark. I always get a little bit creative then. I start not liking my wife. She doesn't make pancakes the way I like them. And you know what I'm going to do? Like, I'm just going to go ahead and, and be sexually immoral. So then she can find out and we can be like, look, the Bible says sexually, you know, sexual immorality, right? So we, we, we can end this. Whoa, 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 whoa. Shall we go on sinning so grace may increase? By no means. By no means. 
So the implication of what, D, what Jesus teaches on divorce falls exactly in line with what Paul tells Corinth. That's why he says, it's not I, but the Lord. Paul's pointing back to what Jesus taught. Now, our three questions are significant. We've already answered one. What does Jesus teach on divorce? We just saw. The second one is huge. Why is divorce harmful? We could pass the mic on this one, right? Right? I'd be interested. I'm not going to, but I'd be interested if I I just said, hey, raise your hand if you come from a broken family. The percentage, I'm sure, would be staggering. Again, every 36 seconds, the stats say in America someone goes through divorce. Why is it so harmful? It is not primarily because it's going to create generations of pain and multiple Christmases. It's not primarily because of the effects and effects and effects that it has on the children and the children's children. No. The reason why divorce is so harmful is because at the heart of the gospel is reconciliation. At the heart of the truth of Jesus is unity is once you were separated because of your sin, and and all of a sudden, God in his grace sends his son to reconcile or bring back together. And so our marriages in Christ are a continual expression to a lost and dying world on the beauty of what the gospel is in our life. Because I tell you what, like my marriage is a up and down, crazy, hot, beautiful mess. I mean, for, for those of you guys that think that somehow, like, that, that, that marriage is going to be forever, like, in a, in a horse and buggy, you're going to go to Cinderella's ball every night, right? And, you know, he's going to get down on his knee and put the, the glass slipper on your perfectly fit foot, right? Like, if you believe that, like, l- let, me, let me share something else with you, okay? The beautiful piece about marriage is, as a sister in Christ, my hot wife, and as me, okay, a very lame guy, what God can do in us. What God can do in us together amidst the hurt, amidst the pain, amidst the difficult conversations, amidst child rearing. Okay, there have been times in the last week I've looked at my kids and I've been like, God, what are you doing to me, right? Like, what is happening, okay? Just just a quick story, okay, a little bit of a commercial break. My son comes home, all right, and and all of a sudden Heidi's like, Maddox has something to tell us. And I'm like, okay, Maddox, what's going on? And, and he said, so every day they, they have this calendar and, and they, they color in on the squares of the day whether they were red, uh, red green, or um, blue, okay? And so Maddox comes home and uh, what we find out is, is the last two days his teacher has told him to write in green, which is still good, but he's colored blue, okay? And then he, he completely lied to his teacher and then he completely lied to us, right? So I'm like looking at my five-year-old and I'm just like, in the world? Are you, like, have, do we demand perfection in this home? Heck no. Like, I am the epitome of not perfect, son. Why do you feel like you have to lie? Like, I'm pulling my hair. This is what marriage is. You're like looking at each other and looking at this kid, and you're like, what are we going to do? We're going to pray big time, you know, and ask God to do a work. This is the beauty of marriage, and it's our opportunity to show a lost and dying world what reconciliation looks like. So the harm of divorce amidst brothers and sisters in Christ is it takes the beauty of unity and reconciliation and covenant and shades the world's perspective of what God is doing in God's people. And I fear that 
in you and I's testimony, the focal point has been its impact and effects on your life and how the seasons are now different. Instead of us understanding the harm that's done as we're ambassadors of Christ to a lost and dying world. Like that's, that's why divorce is harmful. Okay. So the implications of divorce and the gospel, the veins of that run insanely deep. Now, the big question for your particular culture is, is there liberty for discernment? Here's what I mean. So uh, my guess is you guys didn't, you know, when it came to like discerning where to go to college, you guys weren't like, okay, uh, so right there, Matthew 29, you shall go to Lindenwood. Thank you, Lord. Just praying for that text, right? There it is, right? Like, it probably didn't happen, right? You, you probably weren't like, oh, I got a really, I need a really good one, right? Like, boom, and then you open it and, oh, God, sweet, right? And let me sing for my beloved, B- beloved. It starts with a B. I bet you're telling me to go to Mobap, right? B, beloved, like it's, right? Like, my, my guess is, my guess is that probably didn't happen, okay? So listen, there are issues that the church in Corinth and that you and I face that the, uh, that the scripture does not specifically address sometimes. So do we have liberty in discernment? In other words, you feel in your marriage abandoned. It was a believing man and a believing woman, and the believing man is acting a fool. He's completely abandoned you, turned his back on you, doesn't care for you, no apparent sexual morality. So how do we discern what to do? What do we to do? Any kind of discernment, any kind of discernment must begin with God's word, God's word. And a long season of time in God's word, let God define that, but a season of God's word. Again, many of you guys, are, you're discerning things and you, know, you, you do the flip open and you find one scripture that fits to your bias and then you just take that scripture, tattoo it on your, on your back and all of a sudden that becomes your mantra for life. But the problem is the Bible is a systematic structure of God's story. Do you guys understand what I'm saying? From beginning to end, it's enveloping all of us in God's story. So God's word has to be the beginning. Now God has given his people his spirit. And so what starts happening is God's word will never lead you to where the spirit isn't already going. And the spirit will never take you to where God's word isn't going. They never work in contradiction. And then God's grace is with the body. So you're in God's word, you're directed by the spirit, the whole thing is covered in tremendous amounts of prayer, and then God's given us the body to help affirm and confirm things that we're seeing in the scripture, things that we're wrestling with in our life. We get to grab strategic people, mind you, okay, because some of you guys are like, hey, I need some discernment, and you like call your dog, right? Bark twice if you think this is from the Lord. What in the world, right? Like, we, we do that kind of thing. Because we know there's a certain few people in our life that will say, yes, I'm sure God's calling you to do that to anything because they love us. Okay, they're like, oh yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure God's calling you to, you know, to, to walk to Alaska for the glory of God tomorrow. Like, I'm sure, yes, go. Don't even take a dollar. It will just, it will work out, you know. Okay. 
But instead, God's blessed us with the body. He's given us his word. He's given us his spirit. So in other words, in situations of marriage, and then in situations of just general discernment, we have these three tools consistently at our access, again, for a period of time. Some of you are in that place right now. You're discerning through massive things, and you're all spirit. It's interesting to me that when people play the God card, they have no scripture to back it up. You guys know what I'm saying, the God card, right? That's how every, just about every Christian relationship ends. And the Lord told me, here it is right here on my God card. The Lord told me that I need to, oh, really? Did he tell you that? I am so insanely slow to say, thus saith the Lord. I'll say it when we're talking about the scripture. Here's the word. Here's what God says. But I think we take way too much liberty saying, oh, yeah, I know for sure God, God wants this right now. God wants this. I'm, I'm sure of it. Okay, well, sh- sh- take me through the journey. Bring me into the scripture. I don't, I don't have scripture. I just feel it. Okay, but again, the spirit and the word are always going to work together. Are you guys with me, my friends? So in terms of marriage, in terms of even the possibility of divorce, Hard, hard stuff. We turn to the scripture, guided by the spirit, covered in prayer, using good shepherding resources to confirm and affirm what God is showing us, and then we come to periods of discernment. That's the beauty of what God's provided us with the body of Christ and the scripture. Okay. So, divorce, messy. It's harm, tremendous Grace covers over it all. I really, really believe as we continue to go on tonight, someone in this room is going to come to a moment in your life, a crossroads, where it's walk away or not. And you're going to be brought back to the hope of what God could do, even from something he's stirring in you right now. Now, The only issue in Corinth isn't to the married believers. There's other issues. Look at verse uh, verse 12. To the rest, I say, in parentheses, this is a little dicey, I, not the Lord. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Whoa, whoa. Is Paul like push the pause button on inspiration from the Spirit, Right? So in verse 10, he was like, this is the Lord. Remember, we're going to point to the teachings of Jesus. And now he's like, all right, I got, I, got, I got a word for you guys. That's just me. It's not the Lord. That's not what's happening here. Paul isn't pausing the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Every single word in this book is guided and directed by God's Spirit. What he is saying is, I don't have teaching from Jesus to go back to. But he is working under the authority of being an apostle and a called man and, and the guy who, who is called by God to write the scripture. So even though he says, I, not the Lord, it's still inspired by God, we should still adhere to it. Listen to this. To the rest I say that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. Hello. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. 4 verse 14, the unbelieving husband is made holy 
because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, he says, they're holy. Here's what happens. Uh, Mom goes to the, the scroll reading meeting, right? For us, it's Bible study. For back then, it would have been a scroll or something. And she comes home in Corinth. Again, the gospel is just beginning. This has happened in some of your household. She comes home. You'll never believe it. I, Earl, I, I know, like, I know, I know that we've been, like, worshiping, like, all these multiple gods, and I know you, I know you kind of have a hankering for all, like, the spirit prostitutes and such, right? But, but I just heard of a different kind of God, and I want to tell you about it, like, I'm, I'm pretty sure that like what's happening in, in me is that I believe in this God. And she, she lays out for her husband the gospel. I mean, she's like overtaken by it. And, and she comes home. And, and what happens, you, right? Like you can imagine the husband sitting there like, I don't, what are you doing? What incense did you walk by in the street that has caused your delusion? Like what, what's, what's happening, right? But what Paul says is that in this situation when an unbeliever becomes a believer and is still married to an unbeliever, if they'll stay, the unbeliever, then stay. In other words, you got into this both as unbelievers and now it's an amazing opportunity to continue to live out of what the gospel is doing in you. And the impact will be prayerfully, hopefully, the salvation of your husband or your wife and With one believer in the home, the impact on the children will be great. He says they'll be made holy. Does that mean their salvation? Not necessarily. It just means they'll be set apart, consecrated. Your testimony and word will be an impact on them. Huge, huge stuff. This is some of you, right? Mom and dad had you, didn't know anything about the Lord. All of a sudden, one day, dad comes home, right? You're three or four or five or six, whatever, 15, And now all of a sudden, like, dad's fired up about Jesus. And and you're like, whoa, whoa, what's dad? What what happened to you? At first you you think he's brainwashed, right? But then you're, like, catching him on his knees praying. And, you know, his prayers at the dinner table are no longer just like, dear baby Jesus, you know, help the bread nourish us with carbohydrates. All of a sudden he's, like, pleading to the throne of God through the person of Jesus. He's, like, talking about the blood of Christ, right? And, like, you're watching your house transform. This is some of your stories, So what I see here is some principle for us, some encouragement for when in a marriage there's unequally yokedness, okay, if that's a word, uh, how are we to approach it? So here's four principles, four thoughts, four encouragements. Number one, please hear this, marry a disciple of Jesus. Please, please, please. For us, and especially this room, it must begin by marrying a disciple of Jesus, I use this terminology very, very strategically. You guys know as well as I do, I've said it here a million times, any homeboy will say he believes in God because he knows it's what Daddy, Daddy Warbucks wants to hear. He knows that that's what you want to hear. Hey, so my dad said I can only date a believer. Oh, I believe in God. Good enough for me, right? How do you spell it? G-O-D. High ones. We're all on the same page. Right? You can even spell it. We're on our way. Yahweh, oh, got that one too. Even got the tap right there, right? Like Anybody will say they believe in God.
but a disciple of Jesus. Now, that's a whole different kind of category, okay? You can picture this now, right? Homeboy starts dating my daughter, okay, Avery. She's 35, right? And, um, and he, he comes in my home, right? He, he's not 35. He's like 31, and, and they, you know, and they come in my house, right? Now, listen, I'm not the, like, the shotgun kind of guy because I got a couple shotguns right here. You know what I'm saying? Like, I can take care of my own business, right? Right? So, listen, when I sit down with this dude, okay, and I've already had this discussion with Avery many times because I remember she's nine now. True story. I kissed my first girl at seven years old, okay, in the back of her hallway, all right? I was like, hey, you want to go kiss? She's like, uh, Sure. So we went back and kissed, okay? For like one second, we both like walked away. It was like, ooh, that's gross. Seven years old, right? So like my daughter's nine. So I told her over and over again, listen, anytime, anytime a boy ever, ever desires even to merely look at you, you have to bring him and talk to me, okay? Right? So she like walks down the hallways with like, you know, just like girlfriends, like you got to protect me, right? When that dude comes in, my line of questioning will not be, do you believe in God? It'll be, tell me about Jesus. Tell me what you believe about Jesus. And the words that I'm going to hear from the disciple of Christ are going to be about sacrifice and suffering for his glory. And the gospel is infiltrating my heart. And this is what the Lord's teaching me from his word. That is a disciple of Jesus. Ten of eleven disciples were killed because of the cause of Christ. Are you guys with me? So principle number one for all of you is marry that person. I'm going to say something bold, right? And you're like, you haven't started yet? Okay, listen. Um, <laughs> listen. Yeah, okay, so I believe, I believe, I believe if you take physical attraction and set it aside for a second, I believe you could put any God-fearing, Jesus-loving, spirit-led woman and that exact same form of a guy, and you could put them together, and, and they would figure it out. They would, their marriage would work. You guys are so obsessed with, I got to find my soulmate, you know? Mark, do you know who my one is? I don't know who your one is. What are you talking about? You're like looking, you know, you're like walking down the street of the campus, like looking for a guy with a big X over his head or something, right? Or an exclamation point like Super Mario Kart or, or something. Like, like, I don't even understand what you're, what you're talking. What do you mean the one? Right? Like, you find a person who is loving the Lord, subservient to Christ, being spirit-led with a bunch of recon, and I just believe that God will do an amazing, amazing work in that thing. Again, physical attraction aside. Not the physical attraction that kind of convolutes everything a little bit, okay? But that's the person you should marry as a disciple of Jesus, not just someone that believes in God. Principle number two, okay? If that doesn't happen, so if one person comes to Christ later, you're to submit to the teaching in Colossians 4, 5, and 6. This is huge. This is going to be a big teaching for us. Listen, walk in wisdom towards what? Come on. Outsiders, thank you for the three that are participating with me. Outsiders here are, are non-believers, Walk in wisdom towards non-believers. Making the best use of the time. Here we go, verse 6. Let your speech always be what? Come on. Gracious and seasoned with salt. Okay, some of you just got a little bit hungry, but work with us. So that you may know how you ought to answer each person. There is this tendency, and I'll just speak for myself. 
there was a tendency in me to be very self-righteous in the immaturity of my faith. Uh, So I had a a group of uh, friends, five of us, six of us total, five friends. We had decided we're never going to drink, never going to smoke, never going to have sex. Uh, Minimal rock and roll. That was our pact in high school. Okay? What started happening is all of these guys started falling off. They started having sex, started drinking, they started smoking doobies, and then, you know, some other stuff. What started happening in me is I started to grow not in humility, not a heart breaking for them, not a longing for them to know the gospel. I got self-righteous. I was like, oh, yeah, you guys are struggling? Not me. What's your problem? You just need to have a faith like mine, you arrogant punk. And, and I was the one being arrogant. It's no wonder why sometimes that non-believers are like, I want nothing to do with you self-righteous, arrogant punks. And, that, and that's what happens. Okay, someone comes to Christ in their immaturity, they believe that they're going to win their spouse or some of you errantly in missional dating, which I'm completely against, okay? Some of you believe that if I can just like get self-righteous enough and somehow lord over them, then I will be able to save them. The thing I always say in missional dating, the, the same thing in this, in this premise. Listen, you are not the Savior. You are not the Savior. Leave the saving work to Christ, and that can happen in a friendship. So you're like, no, I need, a, I need a date for that person to get saved. Well, what? I've literally heard that statement. Listen, God's not going to save him if we don't date. Really? Right? Really? And could you point to the scripture that would confirm that? Oh, yeah, it's right there in Ecclesiastes chapter 49. It's not a chapter, okay? It's not even close to being a chapter, right? Oh, no, it's Hesitations 3. All right, I'm moving on, okay? Number three, encouragements for unequally yoked. Look at this. Remember, remember your own salvation and be patient. The reason why this is pertinent, especially for some of you, is this is your home. You guys, some of you go home to crying mothers, you go home to dads that don't know what to do because they're in this marriage now where it's unequally yoked and they're, they're praying and they're, they're longing for the salvation of their spouse and it's just not happening. The encouragement to them that you can give, the encouragement maybe that you'll have to remember one day is that, is that you must remember your own salvation, what God has done for you. In other words, it was unlikely. You were living your own way, doing your own thing. You were counted out. In your own mind, your sins had pushed you to the side. You felt condemned. You were like, there's no hope. And then at the precise moment of some of your deepest hopelessness, all of a sudden God makes entrance and screams out your name and calls you his kid. In other words, like there is always hope. And I know it's easier said than believed. I know it's easier to communicate right now than it is to go home to your mom or dad who are in this situation or maybe one day you, but there is always hope. As long as the hearts are beating, God's grace can still come and reign supreme and change. It's beautiful. Be patient, be patient, be patient. Like the pleading widow, okay, persistent widow, it's beautiful, which is why number four is so important. Fast and pray. Keep praying. Don't stop praying. God, I'm tired of praying for my spouse. God, I just want out of this marriage. And what Paul tells Corinth and what I think we can continue to learn is, no, but God can do anything. We're to stay. You're to stay in the marriage. The kids will be impacted. Your unbelieving spouse will be impacted. Beautiful, beautiful stuff will happen. So the married, now the unequally yoked, 
And then finally, he says this, giving an exemption clause to his previous statement in verse 15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. So if the unbelieving partner will consent to stay in the marriage, then stay. But if the unbelieving partner says, it's time for me to go, then let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you, the scripture says, to peace. For, verse 16, how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Give all of that to where it already is, in the hands of God. Now, if you're like me, you've tried for years to try to understand why teachings on divorce matter. In other other words, you've categorized them in this system or this lineage of commands that God is putting on us to try to bridle his people. And you picture, don't you, an angry God saying, do not separate. And if you're going to divorce, then don't remarry. Otherwise, it's adult. You, you like picture this, this God who's up in heaven like beating his fists and calling us all communists. But I want to I portray to you a different kind of God. Maybe one that you have forgotten about. Next slide. You see, this word has brought about tremendous pain. But there's one thing that we haven't done tonight. Is we haven't defined it. We haven't actually said what the definition is of it. Here's the Greek word. Afeame. Everyone say it with me. Come on. Afeame. I I wouldn't suggest this one as a tat, right? You like put that on your form. Oh, what's that? It means divorce. Okay. Right? Get the car, honey. It's time to go. Um, Here's what divorce means. To let go. To leave. To send away. What if teachings in the Bible about divorce actually at the core of them were about teaching us the gospel? What if every page of the scripture that some of you have believed with such legalism, what if every page was sharing with us again the beauty of the character of God and showing us the application of how the gospel infiltrates everything. What if that happened? Then all of a sudden, things like this would make sense. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. In other words, God has every reason to divorce you to send you away, to give you up. Every single one of us in this room have been unfaithful. God said, here's the covenant. I'm going to send my son Jesus. All right, take up your cross and follow me. And every single one of us, every one of us in Christ at times have gone our own way, turned our back, fed from the faucet of our flesh, desire to pursue our own things. God has every, every single reason to let us go. To say, I'm done. I'm done with you people. 
You've proven yourself over and over and over as unfaithful. But what does Hebrews 7 say? This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant, of a different kind of covenant, of a deep covenant. Here's what Hebrews 7 goes on to say. This is crazy beautiful. Look at this. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. In other words, the old high priest, they would die. They couldn't be in office anymore. Make sense? But, but Jesus is different. But he holds his priesthood, what? Come on, what's the word? Permanently. Because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost. Listen, I cannot make your heart beat out of your chest, but I wish that it would right now. Because of who he is, because of the covenant that he has enacted, because of the high priest that he is, he saves to the uttermost. There's no depths that can't be touched. There's no core that can't be reached. There's no sin that can't be graced over. There's no sin that can't be purchased and bought by the blood of Jesus. He saves to the uttermost. That's the beauty of his covenant. That's the beauty of him as high priest. Uh, He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. And just as this was getting juicy, here's here's how the text finishes. For it was indeed fitting, listen, listen to this, that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those old high priests of the Jewish system, to offer sacrifices daily like they did for his own sins and then for those of the people. Listen, because since he did this once for all when he offered up himself, he gives up up himself. And then because of his sacrifice, because of his bloodshed, because of what he's done, now all of a sudden it makes this true. Crazy, God should have left, instead he sent. He should have walked away. Every single one of us, every single one of us should have seen the back of God walking away and him saying, I'm done with you. You've proven yourself time and time again as unfaithful. You can't figure this thing out. I, I, I told you to love your enemies. Why do you keep hating them? I told you to not get a divorce unless this exception and even, even then I desire reconciliation. Why, why did you do that? He has every means to look every single one of you tonight in the face and say, I'm done. And instead, what did he do? He sent. He pursued. He got on the offensive. He sends his son, Jesus, to what? Be a guarantor of a better covenant. To take all of our faithlessness and say, in my son Jesus, now listen, I will never, ever forsake you. I will never, ever leave you. I will never, ever orphan you. You are forever mine. What if the teachings and commandments in the scripture were to shape our perspective of the gospel? Instead, what we see is one more legalistic, harm-filled God trying to glorify himself and bridle his people commandment. But my friends, this whole scripture is filled with freedoms and truth. And what the scripture says about truth is it has come to set us free. I wonder sometimes what would have happened in some of the stories that I've walked with. 
if even amidst the hurt and the pain that's happened in marriage, if both this man and both this woman just said, God, I've been hurt and pained and wronged, but God, we know you can do a work. And just watch these two submit themselves to the Lord and watch the story of reconciliation unfold. And there have been countless testimonies in this body where both parties should have stepped away. Instead, God healed and he reconciled. And now their testimony and their story is a communication to a lost and dying world that God is still moving and he's still alive. So as a body, what we'll do is we will continue to take ourselves to the scripture guided by the spirit of God and discern with our people, with you, the things that God is calling us to do even when it's hard. And we get a chance to do that together, arm in arm. And tonight, we get a chance to celebrate the faithfulness of God in this ancient meal. The four pastors, four men who lead and pastor and shepherd this church tonight are going to serve you. And I'm going to ask that as we prepare this meal, and as we get ready to partake in the broken uh, the broken bread that represents the broken body of Christ. And as we get ready to share in the, the broken and shed blood of Jesus by pulling off a piece of that bread and dipping it in the cup. As we get ready to share in that meal. I just want to encourage you to spend a minute or two or three or four just sitting in your chair. Because I believe that some of you have begun to take for granted the depth and the work of what the gospel has done. Grace for the past, hope for the present, discernment for the future, and the action of a bunch of people who share in the joy of that, they will show a lost and dying world what reconciliation really looks like. As these men come to serve you, please take the next few minutes just to pray and to ask God to show you again the depth of the gospel. And then respond when you're ready.